Hello, and welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Mahler, business divorce lawyer and partner at Farrell Fritz in New York City. Few judges have had greater impact on business divorce litigation in New York than my guest on this episode, the Honorable Justice Carolyn Demarest, who recently retired after over three decades on the bench, including 14 years as presiding justice of the Commercial Division of Kings County, that's Brooklyn for you out-of-towners, of the New York Supreme Court, which, again, for you out-of-towners, is the misleading name given to our trial courts. During her many years on the bench, Justice Demarest decided thousands of cases of all sorts, not just business divorce cases, while presiding over the commercial division, which, as its name implies, only handles complex commercial cases, she developed a stellar reputation as a hardworking, diligent, engaged, straight-shooting, straight-talking judge who ran a tight courtroom, cared deeply about the law, and cared just as deeply about dispensing justice. I know what I speak of because I handled a number of cases before Justice Demarest. Truth be told, I had another selfish reason to appreciate her years on the bench. Here I'm referring to the many detailed, scholarly decisions she wrote in business divorce cases that provided some of the best fodder for my New York business divorce blog, including the landmark Mizrahi case on LLC dissolution and equitable buyout, the Nottonell case also involving LLC dissolution, the Cortez case involving common law dissolution and a deep dive into forensic analysis, and a whole lot more. In my interview of Justice Demarest, we discussed some of these cases and more generally the issues associated with contentious business divorce litigation. When Justice Demarest retired last year, the court's loss became a win for JAMS, one of the top-tier alternative dispute resolution services to which Justice Demarest has brought her stellar reputation as a dispute resolution expert and where she has joined its A-list of former judges who now serve the business community as arbitrators and mediators. During our interview at Jams's Manhattan office, I was especially interested in Justice Demarest's views on mediating business divorce cases, and she did not disappoint. And now I give you the Honorable Carolyn Demarest, sharing her perspective on business divorce as a judge and as a mediator. I'm here with Justice Carolyn Demarest, recently retired from the Commercial Division of the Brooklyn Supreme Court. Judge Demarest, thank you for inviting me and my microphone to your beautiful offices at JAMS. Thank you for coming and for inviting me to join you. Well, I couldn't wait to do it. You are one of the judges who has really made a mark in in, in the world of business divorce. I, I looked up on my own blog how many cases of yours over the years I wrote about, and I was astonished when I when I found out that there were 19 cases of yours that I wrote about, which probably puts you in the in the number one or number two spot. What I really valued every time I saw one of your decisions is that I knew it was going to be a careful, well thought out, scholarly decision, which which you can't take for granted um, in, in New York Supreme Court. So I have deep appreciation for the work you've done on the bench as a justice of the Supreme Court in the commercial division. And we're going to talk about some of your experience with some of the cases and some perhaps some tips you can provide for lawyers uh, who do handle those types of cases in court. And then also talk about your more recent experience as a mediator and arbitrator here at JAMS and maybe uh, give some tips about how lawyers should be approaching those and, and, and the value of mediating and arbitrating cases uh, in an alternative dispute resolution form such as JAMS. 
I'm not going to name all 19 of those cases, but at the top of that list is the uh, Mizrahi case, which we're going to talk a little bit about, the, the Natnell case, which I had the pleasure of litigating before you. Some of the others that I'll mention, um, you had a wonderful decision in a dissolution and valuation of uh, stock interest in a you know, Brooklyn co-op, which, I mean, there's only one or two of those cases out there, and, and you wrote a couple of really interesting decisions on that. There was the um, Eight Swords decision you wrote, which involved um, an undocumented interest, minority interest in an LLC with the sides disputing whether plaintiff in that case had or hadn't put in capital contribution. I think a one-of-a-kind decision. I haven't seen another one like that. The Novikov case is a more recent one, and, and I think that had to do with books and records access, again, involving, I think it was a co-op. The last one I'll mention, which is one of my favorites of yours, is the Cortez case. You had a trial in that case. You had It was a common law dissolution case. It was a restaurant, and there was an issue, a big issue of diverting cash receipts, lots of experts in that case. So you had to decide on the merits, whether there were grounds for dissolution, and then you took it the next step and came up with a buyout remedy. Again, these very much thinking outside the box. You've handled a gazillion more business divorce cases than the 19 that I wrote about. You were on the commercial division bench for about 14 years. I'm wondering, in general, did you find those cases to be any more or less challenging, demanding, enjoyable, or distasteful than, in general, the rest of your your docket? It's difficult to answer that question because I think every case is unique. There are always issues somewhere in the case, whether it's the personality of the parties, the relationship they've had. Sometimes it can be the lawyers even and, and their perception of the situation. I have always found the business divorce cases to be very challenging and very enjoyable and sometimes not fun because you can see that people are running into a train wreck and keep telling them that over and over and over again and they don't hear it. And so they plot on and it just gets worse and worse and of course if you have a feeling that you know what what should happen is that they should settle down and figure it out but they don't, and so you have to decide it, and that is you being the judge has to decide it. And occasionally it's frustrating because when you're left with that, you have to make a decision on the law and precedent. Sometimes that's not the most equitable result, as in Mizrahi, in which I originally said the uh, limited liability company's law did not provide for the kind of buyout that the or the allocation to one party of the interest of the other party. And the appellate division said, yes, go ahead, do it. And that's why it was important. We're going to come back to Ms. Rahi. um, But following up on my first question, from my perspective, you start to look at all of these cases as tactical, particularly if you're dealing with a viable business whether it's real estate or an operating business, you know, it's a tactical exercise in gaining the high ground because ultimately, you know, in the end, there's going to be some sort of a transaction, whether it's a buyout or a division of the assets, usually the buyout. And so, and and not a dissolution. So, although, of course, that happens, as I think in my Nell case, that's what exactly what happened. But those are the the exceptions to the, the general rule which is that these cases ultimately settle. And I always say to everyone who will listen to me that generally in the end, they settle on the same or similar terms that you could have probably negotiated right up front. But again, my question is, from the bench, do you get that sense that this is all just tactical maneuvering? And and does that affect the way you 
in any way the way you handle those cases. In all litigation, each side is trying to control the results, trying to gain the advantage. So I guess they're all tactical to that extent. Um, in my mind, the way to deal with disputes of all kinds is to sit down and think about it and work it out and discuss it and find a way that can resolve the problem. When you litigate, you are, by definition, jockeying for position, making arguments. Sometimes the arguments will be accepted by the court, sometimes not, sometimes they're applicable, sometimes not, sometimes there's statutory issues that would actually conclude the matter. I think by the time people get into court, they think they've exhausted the alternatives. And so now, yes, the request for dissolution is, well, well I'll show you, I'm going to take my football and go home and that's it. And you're out of luck because there'll be no company. So it is kind of elevating the, the consequences. At, at the bottom, I think everyone wants to resolve it. They want to find a way, either the business can go on because it really is something they both want, or just get out as your net in all case yeah. was the one side wanted just to get out of this relationship. So. In most of these cases, procedurally, they come in front of a judge very quickly from the time they're filed, usually by order to show cause with, yeah. a, with a petition. Was it your standard practice to, off the record, informally, proactively uh, talk to counsel about getting the case resolved very early on? Because that's not a conversation that you have in, with, with many j judges I won't name. I think that was my general experience with you, though. Oh, well, you never walked through the door of my courtroom without being asked whether there wasn't some way we could resolve this. And, of course, if you're doing a order to show cause and often a TRO request and there's something that's going to change the relationship of the parties right up front before you even know the merits mm -hmm. and before there's been any kind of discovery and the judge really doesn't know. So, of course, I would talk to the lawyers. It was the only possibility to get any information that might find a way of steering the case to a resolution. And, and by that, I mean, I not that I had determined what the resolution should be, but rather, okay, you're going to meet next week and exchange documents or review the records or let's get, 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 get this going, essentially, is what I would encourage. I have a very distinct memory in one case I handled that was assigned to you. I won't name the case. It was two sisters who had been very, very close their entire lives. They had a business together. And I remember on the very first appearance in front of you, you called counsel up to the bench. You knew you had read the papers. You knew that there were these two sisters. You knew that they were saying horrible things about each other in their papers, notwithstanding. They had been close for all these years. And I could just see and hear from, from your look and your tone that you were very sincerely disturbed at the idea of these two sisters who were going to be litigating. After maybe a round or two, you were successful in sort of urging mediation. It is, it is one of, I think, the only two cases in my career where, as a result of that, we saw a mediator. We spent an hour in the mediation room. The two sisters exchanged a glance at some point and excused themselves from the room. Thirty minutes later, came back arm in arm, hugging and laughing, and, and they settled. And it was just an amazing experience. And, um, you know, uh, some of the credit went to you for really pushing the parties. Because you really, in my experience, neither side wants to blink in a lot of these cases. And it really, they're almost secretly hoping the judge will initiate that conversation about settlement and mediation. That's a dream result. 
when you get that. And, and you can have it outside the context of a familial relationship as well. Some be, if people have been in business together for many, many years, they've gone to family events together, they know their families, they, there is a, it's an integrated life. In your case, you're talking about actual blood relationships, but sometimes it's almost like that with business partners. You, you hope to trigger that sense of what was what was the reason you got together in the first place? What was it that you liked about this other person? Or I mean, I don't think I would put it quite that way, but to try to restore the trust that had originally provoked their association. And I guess that's probably what happened with the yeah. sisters too. Some significant portion of the business divorce cases you handled were family-owned businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've handled, you know, father against son, cousin against cousin, every permutation of blood relations, and, and you've seen those and adjudicated those. Uh, are those sort of in their own separate category, more difficult, more uh, prolonged, more, more fighting, more motions, or not really? It's a mixed situation. Um, some things are like what you just described with the sisters, but sometimes, and I can remember at least one, if not more, cases in which one generation had set up a relationship, a business, a piece of property and an associated business, and then each, uh, with brothers, let's say, and then each one of them bequeaths to their heirs, and it goes down a few generations, and then you have this very unpleasant situation because that three or four generations later and the real estate market is just booming and they want their money and they don't care that this business has been operating there perhaps by only some of the original heirs and they don't really care about that and it's really sad to see that it's really hard to find a solution in that situation but sometimes it works you know sometimes they come around I always blame the parents. I always, I always blame the first generation because you know they all think that oh, there are children. They must love each other. They will get along when I'm gone. And it's it's in some respects a fantasy. That's just not what happens in life when the interests of siblings or whatever the relation is diverge for perhaps very good reasons and they have different interests to pursue and that creates the friction but again it is you could say it's a failure of succession planning the the first generation business owners need to understand that it's not necessarily the case that those who inherit the business will be interested in running the business or qualified to run the business but that seems to be human nature and it's what keeps me in business and keeps the judges busy right right i want to turn to the subject of LLCs. Now, the LLC statute was adopted in New York in 1994. You know, we didn't really start to see those LLC disputes pop up until some years later. Early 2000s is when you first started to see any significant number of cases involving business divorces in LLCs. And since then, of course, the the, the number of LLC disputes has just gone through the roof. And, and I think at this point in my practice overshadows the number of business divorce cases I have involving business corporations and certainly partnerships or, or, or limited partnerships. Now, I have my own views about the LLC law and its shortcomings. I'd be really interested to hear sort of the, the, from, the, from the judicial perspective, you know, what your take on that was. Did you find that the statute and either what was in or not in the statute made those cases even more difficult to process and adjudicate than, you know, business corporations under Article 11 of the BCL? 
Well, I, I agree with your perception that the LLC form, business form, has obscured almost the subchapter S corporation, which was the usual way that a small, closely held business would do business. And I guess because the commercial division opened in 2002, maybe that's why I have so many cases that have been dealing with it, because as you know, I'm not telling you something you don't know, but it's contractual in nature, unlike the corporation. So the advantage is that the parties can kind of structure their relationship any way they want, but they don't. And that's what the real problem is. And some of the most difficult cases I had was came out of a situation where there had never been an operating agreement or in some cases somebody just manufactured something out of I don't know what off the internet or something and put the names in place and it didn't have anything to do with the relationship of these parties and then you're stuck with dealing with the LLC law and that often is has gaps and you're trying to figure out a solution to something when you're theoretically at least supposed to be following statutes. It's tough. I have to say, the law has been unsettled in many areas. Each case is always a little different than every other case, and you're trying to be creative and figuring out how you use the statute if necessary to reach what seems to be a fair and just result, or if the agreement is there and you're trying to interpret that agreement in some way to reach a reasonable interpretation and then you have this dissolution standard that really is not the same as it is for corporations and that was not very well defined for a long time now we have a standard of uh, reasonably practicable financial feasibility but not deadlock not deadlock well, we're going to come back to deadlock for sure <laughs> near and dear to my heart to me you're spot on in terms of talking about the difference in, in the uh, dissolution standard, which really wasn't defined for the first 16 years until the second department, Judge Austin did it in the 1545 Ocean Avenue case, which I know you know uh, frontwards and backwards. The other major omission from a, in the business divorce area, of course, is there's no exit right. There's no equivalent to a minority shareholder oppression statute under the BCL. There's no equivalent to section 1118 of the BCL, which is that election to buy out once a petition is filed. I sort of you know, think of the LLC law in that respect as something of a, of, a, of a pressure cooker. And over the years, this pressure is building up and courts are being fa- you know, met with these situations where there doesn't seem to be an exit that's provided either by an operating agreement, if it exists even, or the statute. And I think the, the pressure reached its, its tipping point, that's probably a mixed metaphor, in the, in, the, in the Mizrahi case, where they came up with this equitable buyout solution. Right. Um, and of course, you played a very important role in, in, getting us, in getting us there. Well, initially, as you know, I did not grant the petitioner's request that I permit him to buy out the interest. Let, let me, let me uh, I want to spend a few minutes on this, Rossi. So let me just, for listeners who are not familiar with the case, let me just give you the bare setup. You had a 50-50 New York LLC that had an operating agreement that was, that was just, you know, slapdash together in connection with a mortgage financing, I think. And it was two, it was a, two brothers-in-law. One was a dentist, one was an optometrist. And they bought a property with the idea that they were going to renovate, build, and create offices for their own separate businesses as well as some rental uh, space. And it, it, it seemed to take place over a very long period of time. 
And initially, it seems like they were getting along well together. They were putting in equal capital contributions. And then while the building was still being renovated, one of them stopped contributing. And the other was, was you know, felt compelled, really, to make it up. And so you had one of the two partners over a period of years putting in significant hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars more in capital contributions. The operating agreement, of course, had no provision compelling capital contributions. So he was actually, the one who was contributing was doing it on a voluntary basis. Perfect storm, you have the recession in 07, 08. Real estate values are, are going to the, you know what, and now the building apparently is underwater. They had a four-something million dollar mortgage on it. The appraised value was right about there. There, there was all that debt owed to the one member who had put in all that money. Anyway, that was sort of the backdrop for the one who had been putting in all that money petitioning for dissolution, and that's when it lands on your desk. Well, one of the things that was, I mean, I want to throw this into the mix because actually the operating agreement specifically said that we know capital contributions, that you cannot make a demand for copy. And, and so their early on sharing of the shortcomings of the finances of this operation was voluntary. But then when the one side, and it was the optometrist, <coughs> excuse me, um, stopped putting in his 50% share of these contributions. And the one side, he was trying to save the building. It would, it, would, yeah. it would have gone into foreclosure and it would have been gone. But there were tenants in the building. And in fact, this optometrist not only didn't make capital contributions, but wasn't paying his rent. So the inequity of the situation just kept getting larger and larger and larger. Now, you decided that case post- 1545 Ocean yes. Avenue. So you had the second department statement on what the standard for dissolution was and the two prongs of it being the financial infeasibility or the inability to achieve the purpose uh, of the LLC. And my recollection is that in your first major decision in that case, you granted dissolution. You wrote a very detailed I, th I think it was post-trial. Am I? Is that right? Um, yes, I think it was. It was uh, a post-trial decision, and I think ultimately you you rested your grant of dissolution on the prong of financial infeasibility because praise value was either at or less than the mortgage balance, and they were you had accountant testimony un unrefuted, I think, that the monthly. Uh, revenue, you know, the carrying costs of the building exceeded the monthly uh, revenues yeah. by some ten or twenty thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. So it was all headed downhill at that point. And I think that was it was interesting that you you rested it on financial infeasibility. You didn't do it. You, you didn't do it as you said based on deadlock or that or the inability to achieve the stated purpose. I guess they were they, the building was there with real estate. It's kind of funny when you talk about a stated purpose, isn't it? Because it's to it's to buy and own and operate real estate, and that seems to be what they were doing. Well, it was being that the purpose was being yes. that it was being rented to others. It was being occupied by the two members of the LLC. So that there no. was no grounds there, but the um, financial in, infeasibility was a, right. wasn't even difficult. So, it was so, so clear. I think in that f same first decision, you ordered an accounting. You didn't immediately order any other remedy. I think you said there was a need for an accounting, and, I, and I, I'm presuming that you uh, that happened. And then there was another decision, I forget how much later, in which you granted a remedy. I think the template you used was 
that Lyons against Salomon decision, which was a first department decision from some years earlier, in which although they called it liquidation, what they, they, what they set up was a closed auction between two members in which they would each bid for each other's interest. It always struck me as funny, that Lyons case, because although they called it a liquidation, it's really not. I mean, if, if it's a buyout and the entity still exists and hasn't been dissolved, how do you call that a liquidation? But that's just semantics. But I think that's uh, what you ended up doing in that case. You ordered yeah. that? Well, the, the Lyons case was a little different than the situation I was dealing with. But what I was trying to do was create a, a means to restore the petitioner's well, we treated it as a loan to this uh, LLC, and he, it was so disproportionate that there, there had to be a way that he could bid for this somehow or buy each other out. It's almost beyond explanation at this point for the purposes of our discussion because there were restrictions in the operating agreement that kind of prevented the usual type of resolution, valuation, that sort of thing. It, it provided that if somebody initiates an action it which, by which they were meant to get out, that they were at the disadvantage and the other side had almost like the 1118 right. provision. And, and that left the respondent, who was the guy who wasn't paying his share and was deeply in, uh, in arrears, the advantage of, of being able to control the buyout situation. It just, it just was so convoluted. Plus you had the complication of personal guarantees on the mortgage debt, I think. Yes, we had that as well, of course, that's right. And that was one thing to deal with. And the petitioner was quite willing mm. to undertake that and take on the whole mortgage. But the respondent, of course, didn't want to get out from under. And of course that was in the hands of the third party bank as to whether they would go along with it. So the liquidating trustee, of course, was charged with sorting some of this out. But the critical issue that went to the appellate division was whether I could order the, the buyout, essentially, of the respondent's yeah. interest. So let's just back up a little. In, in your decision that granted this, this closed auction remedy, and I just want to mention, I think you did allow a credit bid by the petitioner, which is yes. very important. Yes. You expressly decided that and rejected the petitioner's application to compel a, just a straight buyout of the other yes. of his brother-in-law. And you did that based on your reading of uh, the LLC statute, mm -hmm. the operating agreement, and that's what you had to work with. So that's why you came, you, you, as I say, you, you sort of followed in the path of the lion's formula instead of just ordering a buyout as requested by the petitioner. Now, soon after you issued that decision, the appellate division handed down its ruling from your first decision, granting dissolution. They upheld you on that, but then they entertained and granted the petitioner's argument that he should be entitled to what the court ended up labeling an equitable buyout. And that was a, that was a first. That was new law. Because there was no statutory basis for it. And there was no, nothing in the operating agreement that would, would have permitted that result. So when the appellate division made that ruling, that really was 
a landmark decision for the purposes of the law in the state of New York. I mean, they reversed me on it. I didn't mind that. I never mind being reversed. Just give us the law so we can apply it. Well, I think at least you and I can agree that your decision was consistent with the law as it existed at the time you made that decision. And, and really what the second department did was make some new law. You know, it was a, a, a good case, in, factually, I think, for the second department to make this new law. And um, there have been a couple of cases since then that have followed in its footsteps. Not that many from what I see. And it's not clear yet. I mean, there haven't been enough cases yet where you can really say, here, here's the contours of when an equitable buyout is, is allowed. Well, I think it should be remembered that the whole concept of dissolution is equitable in nature. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about, is a way of dealing some, with a situation that needs to be adjusted in a practical, reasonable way to the benefit of the parties. It's, it's yeah. not just some bright line. There's a lot of discretion in the court. In, in all of the dissolution yeah. statutes. Well, I, I always say to, uh, that, that if I were a legislator sitting up in Albany looking to see how I can reform the LLC law, I would see no justification for distinguish for, for not having a buyout remedy, a statutory buyout remedy, such as is in the BCL. I mean, from the business owner's standpoint, they're being put into an entity because a lawyer or an accountant is telling them, for tax purposes, usually better to use this entity than that entity. And that's all they know. It's almost by accident, therefore, they find themselves in an, in an entity form, which is just inviting problems down the road when there's a dispute between the partners. But I'm not a legislator, so I can't do that. I want to talk about um, the other favorite case I have of yours, which happens to be the Nottenell case, which, which again, I had the pleasure of litigating with you. The setup on that, not all that dissimilar in some ways from Mizrahi, except you did not have an operating agreement between these two gentlemen who were 50-50 LLC members in an LLC whose sole asset was a piece of real estate in Brooklyn that was bought for and used for the purpose of, of housing a separately incorporated moving business that they had together. You know, they had a falling out. The moving business essentially ceased. It wasn't formally dissolved, but effectively it was dissolved, and they each started up their own separate moving business, and then they, got, of course, got into fights about the building. I think there was initially some efforts to rent it out, but those failed, disputes over why it failed, and then eventually my client petitioned for dissolution. And by the way, I just want to say, we started that case in May of, I think it was 13. It was all finished by April of 14. That is the, the decision that, you know, the ultimate post-trial decision. So less than a year, which is, believe me, uh, an accomplishment for you and, and, and great news for the parties because we know those cases can take a whole lot longer. So you, you initially, you didn't deny the petition initially. You said there are issues of fact requiring a trial. So you gave us that decision. I think it was in October of 13. We had a trial that started two months later in December of 13, a bench trial. You issued a mid-trial ruling on the uh, respondent's motion to dismiss the case for failure to make out a prima facie case for dissolution. You actually agreed with them that my client had not established financial infeasibility, which frustrated me greatly because I had put on an accountant to say that this, this is effectively a bankrupt entity because, it, it, it again, like Mizrahi, the money's coming in were less than the, the, the carrying costs of the building. 
but the mortgage was almost fully paid. And anyway, I won't go into too much detail. But then we completed the trial, and then some months later, you issued your post-trial uh, decision, and the post-trial decision granted dissolution. You you had already said financial feasibility, no, not a ground for dissolution. Now, in that case, it would have been a ground for dissolution, but it wasn't established. The real, you know, uh, important, I think even more important part of your decision was finding that the granting dissolution based on the inability to achieve its purpose. And and what was so interesting was that there was no operating agreement, so there was no statement of purpose. The the articles of organization had nothing about the purpose of the LLC, so you had to rely on the party's testimony. One side said it was was purchased for, for the purpose of housing the other business, which now is gone, therefore no longer serving its purpose. That was my client's side. And the other side said, no, we, we bought it for investment purposes and we can rent it up and make lots of money forever. And, and so it was just a credibility and factual determination that you had to, to make. Does that sum it up? I would say it sums it up perfectly. You're absolutely right. Ultimately, it came down to what is this concept of, uh, of infeasibility or uh, which is the standard under the LLC law that's distinguishable from corporate dissolutions that you can, and in some respects, um, philosophically, I think it's consistent with what an LLC in theory was meant to be as it was created. That is this very close held, closely held business entity with a, a defined purpose and few members. It's not IBM or anything like that. It can't be. It was limited, although I guess they've expanded the numbers of people that can be members now. But it's, it's ironic to me in a way that the standard for dissolution of an LLC is more onerous than it is for a corporation because you can't, deadlock is not sufficient, which is difficult for me. And of course, we argued on the Delaware law in that case as well, which did specifically the case law was that this was a ground. So we had to go with something else and the purpose was the issue and I think it hadn't been too well defined but that really was raised in this case. I gave it my best shot at convincing you that deadlock as a you know sort of per se ground satisfied the standard and you you said no to that which and and I think you relied on in part at least on the 1545 Ocean Avenue case which had some language to that effect in it so I was trying to sort of push the envelope myself and, and, and it, Judge Fisher had said that deadlock could be. Judge Fisher, yeah. in his concurring opinion, yeah. Stephen Fisher, but that was rejected by the majority. And, and that opinion was very important in my assessment of this because essentially the appellate court had rejected the concept that seemed applicable. For me, it's, uh, I don't know what you think, it's sort of a tempest in a teapot because you know, you can say that deadlock per se is not a ground for um, dissolution under New York's LLC law, but when the two owners can't agree on important issues, it leads to other dysfunction, and which which could you, you know could fall under that other prong of the 1545 Ocean Avenue test, which is inability to achieve its stated purpose. Well, I guess the question also is, what is deadlock, and when is it so severe that it's it's a dysfunctional company? because the potential is always there for disputes about minor issues, maybe major issues. One case I recall was the parties were fighting about the fact that one side, one member, had brought in his son, and that other side 
didn't like the sun, and, the, and, and there were actually several cases where you had that kind of situation. Now, is that a deadlock? I mean, they were managing the company, but they were fighting all the time. Is that a deadlock? I don't know. I want to move on to a, a topic that perhaps is even near and dearer to your heart these days as a, as a mediator and arbitrator at, at JAMS. And I, I'm gonna really going to talk about mediation. How, how has the transition been, by the way, from the bench to now you're doing, well, you're doing both arbitration, so you get to really play the role of judge, right. and you're doing mediation as well. Enjoying it very much. I think really I'm doing what I was doing as a judge. If it's me, if it's arbitration, some of the rules are a little different. The structure's a little bit different, and I've had a learning curve in that area. Exactly, you know, which rules apply and the time constraints and things of that nature. But ultimately, I would make the decision as an arbitrator. So I'm doing basically what I was doing on the bench, and I did a lot of or attempted to do some mediation. So. What I really love is not having 500 cases at a time because you can't really, you know, I make copious notes of everything. And that was because the only way I could remember would be to look at those notes in the file. And I made files in every case, which not all my colleagues did. Um, so I could refresh my recollection and, and try to move the case from where it was the last time it was in court. But there's a limit to what you can do on the bench you're expected ultimately in the commercial division that you're going to try the case. And so, and you are a neutral jurist, you can't become familiar with facts that are outside the record. You can't have ex parte conversations unless there's a waiver of that. Because ultimately, if you make the decision, you shouldn't be privy outside the record. So it, there were times when I felt like I'd like to get my hands on it and try to get the thing resolved, but there wasn't time enough for all those cases. Well, I haven't had um, any mediations with you at JAMS so far. I imagine, though, that you, with your experience in business divorce cases over so many years, could give one of the more convincing speeches to the parties in their counsel over the horrors of, of not settling their dispute in mediation. Well, I used to make that speech in every case. You know, folks, if you work it out between yourselves, you're not left to the uncertainty of a third party being me, the judge, of deciding it for you and the cost and the discovery and all the other issues that come into play in litigation and the time, usually years. I mean, I made that speech many, many times. And now as a mediator, of course, I make that speech initially, not up front, but as we get into the core of it to say, you know, you're, you're going to end up with the same issue two years from now because you will not yet have had a decision and you're going to have the agony really. For litigants, it is. I mean, for the lawyers, that's the career you've chosen and there's a certain, it's fun in litigating really, but for the parties, you're constantly in that state of uncertainty, of risk. It's a nightmare for the litigants. You know, I've done, I did some mediation training myself and I occasionally mediate. So I know a little bit about, you know, the facilitative versus the evaluative. Mm. When I'm on, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm an advocate though, in a mediation in the business divorce case, more often than not, and usually the other lawyer on the other side agrees, we want a mediator who tells it like it is. And, and you don't always get that in mediators. What's, what sort of, you yeah. know, what do you bring to that table? Well, 
this has really been something that has been a, some, something of a learning process for me, you know, coming away from being a judge where I really had to remain very impartial and only work with both sides at the same time and sometimes say, you know, where your weaknesses might be. But I realize the mediation is much more deliberative and it's a slower process. And yet the parties and often the lawyer, now you're saying it, they wanna know what to do. They want you to tell them what to do, I think. Even though in theory, the, the facilitator concept is to say, Let's look at all the angles. Let's look at all of your concerns. What is this case really about? What are you fighting about? And let's find, and you're trying to find on each side, give and take, somehow reaching a compromise that will satisfy the concerns of both sides. That's the facilitative approach. And that's a very good approach. But I think what you just said is what I think is often the truth. You might go through that process initially, but ultimately what they want is for you to tell them what would happen if you were making the decision judge. They want you to say, you're gonna win, you're gonna lose, whatever it is. Or these are the issues and you're not looking too good on that particular point. That's exactly among the reasons, if not the main reason, lawyers are recommending to their clients that they engage a mediator such as you. I mean, you have 30 or so years of, over 30 years experience on the bench. That is what they want. They want someone who can apply that experience in a mediation setting, or at least I do. I, I don't know if you've, you know, mediated business divorce matters since you've been at jams. Would would your approach be any different with those cases as any other, biz, you know, commercial case? Me, mediation is is even more compelled in a dissolution situation or a, or a business divorce situation because there are so many moving parts. There always are. It's not just a simple matter. It, it involves the emotions of the parties. It involves the consequences, financial and other consequences uh, of that breakup. You're really dealing very often and sort of sadly with a life like divorce, like a marriage where you've, it's very, very traumatic for people who've spent their lives building a business with somebody to get to a point of saying, it's gotta end now. It's a very difficult process. and. And sometimes it can be hard, particularly in a family uh, situation, to get the family members in the same room talking to each other. Yeah. I mean, I've been, at, I've been at mediations in this building and elsewhere where there's not a joint session. Parties literally don't even see each other in the course of a full day of mediation. My practice has been uh, with mediation to begin with what would be an introductory I won't even say joint session, but everybody in the room, and to explain the process, tell people what time lunch is, where the bathrooms are, things like that, but to try to set the tone a little bit of, we're all here together, and we're gonna do this, and both sides, or all sides, are gonna be put through the same process. I do think it's important to do that initially. I mean, if they're not throwing things at each other, they'll usually, you know, sit on their hands. I discourage the lawyers and sometimes they want the parties to make a statement. To me, that's a disaster. Well, the last thing you want is to begin 
to my mind, to begin with having each side tell the other side what they did wrong and why they're right and how bad they are. That's not my idea of how it should begin. So when I say an initial joint session, it's really just an introductory, this is who I am, this is what the process is, the usual speech about how mediation is preferred and the benefits and the the disadvantages of litigating and things like that, a very general kind of discussion. And, but I think it's important that people see that the other side is here and who is here. So I wouldn't be so much in favor of ag- ag- absolutely keeping them apart. Sometimes an important player is not there, and that's, that's significant. I'm wondering also if that important player who's not there sometimes can be the accountant or the business appraiser, particularly where you have a valuation issue which ultimately could make the difference between settling or or not settling. Now, you have so much experience, and we really haven't talked about your cases involving valuation, but I, I know from these cases of yours that I've written about that you've handled some really complex valuation cases that were initiated as dissolution cases. And that is sort of an art and science unto itself. And not all judges have that experience. You have that experience. You know, for my buck, I would think that having a judge, a former judge who's not only experienced in the basics of business dissolution so they can address who's, you know, well, I'm going to say right or wrong. That's not really what I mean. But the underlying issues, but then can get to the real part of the thing, which is if there's going to be a transaction, we have to start valuing things to make that transaction happen. Depending what the assets are, that could be either a very easy or difficult enterprise. And I don't know if you've had that opportunity to parlay your valuation experience in any of your mediations yet, but you know, I would think that's an important uh, skill set in, in a mediation and business force case. As you know, better than many, valuation is a tough business. If both sides have brought in their own appraisers and their own statistics and their own information, there's often a very wide gulf between the two sides. And you may have to take a lot of testimony and the different methods of valuation and what's appropriate to certain types of businesses or property or whatever, and to come to something where you really do have a sense of what it's worth. I think, you know, you're always bound to the evidence that's before you anyway. Then, of course, it will become credibility, too. When you have an expert, I'm going to have to tell you, you know, you pay your expert, you get what you want. That's the name of the game. So you know, going into it, that these extremes, chances are neither evaluation is going to be really on the money, as they say. You're going to have to discount some things, add some things, and maybe find somewhere in the middle. And I guess under the right circumstances, you would you would probably urge the parties, if they haven't brought in appraisals or appraisers into the mediation, I would imagine you would you would encourage them to do so. In several cases, and and I think Ms. Ray is a very good example of this, the parties actually agree on the appraisal, but the uh, the appraiser, the person who's going to do the evaluation, sometimes it could be an accountant or it can be a, a, a professional appraiser, but they have agreed on somebody. Unfortunately, when the result comes in, somebody doesn't like, and then you end up wanting to, to find your own uh person and it goes on well at the risk of um repeating yourself a little or having me ask you to repeat yourself a little why don't we wind up with you know the ultimate question you've had you know over three decades of experience on the bench you've been at jams now for i think for over a year yes it's i started actually i think in mid-september 
first um, case I heard last was in year. October. Yeah, so it's not yet a not year. Not yet a year. Well, I'm yeah. sure I'm sure you've had a good taste of, of it. And I guess, you know, to you know, listeners, whether they're lawyers looking to advise their clients or maybe some business owners who are listening to this, you know, what advice would you give them of the relative advantages of mediation versus litigation? To my mind, there's really no advantage to litigation, except of course that you can take an appeal if you have a judicial decision. And you can keep fighting it, but all that does is is uh, perpetuate the misery of their, your situation. And you still have a risk that you're not going to win. And you're spending a lot of money. Realistically, I, I tell people this all the time, and it is true that it will cost you a fortune if you go through litigation. I, I don't know why people don't see that whether they win, even if even if they win, that they're likely to have spent more in the process than whatever it was going into the dispute. And I can't convince people sometimes of that, but keep saying it over and over and over again. And then there's the control element that I think is terribly important, especially for your purposes of a business divorce, where you you still have the control over what factors are at issue and how to adjust them and what kind of agreement can be reached. Very often especially I think in business divorces, it's not really the issue that they articulated in their pleadings, which are very formal. But there might be something else there, as I think you might have been aware in Netanyahu, which I will not discuss, but the innuendo was there, that something really had gone on here in these uh, relationships that really were what they were fighting about. And you, you might have to find a way of dealing with that or there might be just pieces of, of how to resolve it. Does that child that's been brought into the business need to leave the business or something like that? But you've got flexibility that you don't have in litigation and you don't know what the judge is gonna find important. You don't know what is gonna be credited or not credited or uh, how it will be resolved. And I have to say as a judge, there were times when I really struggled with that, where the law really was taking the result in a direction that didn't seem like the right the right result for that particular case but i'm constrained as a judge i was constrained by the law to go that route so you don't have that in mediation you can always propose an alternative uh resolution and of course time well time is very big factor as you pointed out you could easily get the thing resolved within a matter of a few weeks, if, if that even. But litigation, you've got discovery that goes on forever, and then the witnesses aren't available, and the cost of reproducing the transcripts, and it just, I can't even imagine that it's um, in any way comparable. It is obviously mediation is superior in every respect. Well, those are good words to close out on. Judge Jemmers, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. And thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to do it. Thanks for listening to the Business Divorce Roundtable. If you enjoy the program, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at pmahler at farrellfritz.com. You can also spread the word by posting a review on iTunes and letting your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. If you haven't already done so, check out previous episodes where you'll hear very informative interviews of leading experts in the field of business divorce and business appraisal. And of course, don't forget to keep up with my New York Business Divorce blog, where I post a new article every Monday.